is up, my friend, and welcome to the Dan Go Show. I'm your host, Dan Go, coach to high-performing entrepreneurs and professionals. And what we do at the Dan Go Show is tease out the best practices of the highest-performing entrepreneurs in the world while sharing cutting-edge, evidence-based information to help you become healthier and wealthier. So if that's what you're into, you're in the right place. Click that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts so every time one of my episodes goes live, you'll be the first to know. What is up and welcome to the podcast. Really excited for this one because I'm bringing on my friend. His name is Corey Mascara and he is a former monk. He's the co-founder of mindfulness.com. He's a best-selling author of the book, Stop Missing Your Life. He has taught mindful leadership at Columbia University. He's an instructor of positive psychology at the University of Penn, Sylvania, while educating over 500,000 followers across his social media channels. And he's actually been named by Dr. Oz as one of the nation's leading experts in mindfulness and Corey's meditations have actually been heard 25 million times over 150 countries. Now, all that being said, uh, this was an incredible conversation that I've had with Corey. He is, like I said, he's a friend. Uh, we've had, we basically have seen each other. We've had conversations in real life, you know, out there in the real world. And, um, one of the things that uh, I really loved about this whole conversation is amongst the many things is, uh, the, the idea of, uh, what the definition of mindfulness is, especially in the, the year that we are in 2022 and, and, a lot of times, you know, we t- actually during this interview, we talk about, you know, his his militant background when he was first learning mindfulness from one of like the hardest uh, Buddhist teachers. He actually was a monk that was living in the monastery for about six months. That was like super dope to figure out. And uh, and also we do get into how mindfulness fits into and meditation as well, how it fits into the entrepreneur's life and how they can integrate mindfulness and meditation. Uh, because they are two different things. They they are connected, but they're two different things and how they can integrate these things into their life. And uh, if you are new to this podcast, please do me a favor, uh, you know, subscribe. We would really love to, or I would really love to uh, have you as part of the tribe. Uh, we are growing this podcast. I'm, I'm doing these interviews and uh, I'm just trying to put out the best stuff possible. And it'd be really uh, dope if you can actually just subscribe. And uh, if you are on say something like iTunes or Spotify, you know, leave us a five-star review, not just a review, but you know, one of them five-star hits, you know what I'm saying? And uh, that's about it. Hope you enjoyed this interview with Corey. And uh, yeah, without further ado, here is Corey Mascara. All right, Corey, welcome to the podcast. Good to have you on, brother. Thank you, Dan. Excited. (laughs) Yeah. So I wanted to start this uh, off with a, a question. So what is mindfulness? Good one. It's a good starting point <laughs> since I do consider myself a mindfulness teacher. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of the, it's a bit of a complicated question because mindfulness is a translation of uh, a Pali word, which is the language of the Buddhist time. And that word is um, sati, S A T I. The direct translation of that word is to remember. And so we've kind of um, turned it into mindfulness. And I want to just touch on how those two overlap to remember and mindfulness. I really like the to remember piece, because it can point to so many different things. On one level, it's pointing to the more obvious of like remembering to be here, awake, attuned, the opposite of being on autopilot. And I think everyone listening knows that experience of like, oh, I woke up in the morning and 10 hours went by and I have no idea what I was doing or I was just going through the motions. Mm. And we can live large swaths of our life like that, years and decades, or just being partially there, reacting to whatever thoughts and emotions arise without actually having a, a center. So that first stage of to remember is really pointing to um, the remembering and the recognition that there's a place within you that is able to be aware of and attuned to and even non-reactive to the actual constituent elements of your experience, the thoughts, the emotions, the sensations, and anything happening in your sensory experience. And that's really where we might shift from like an animal type orientation to homo sapiens sapiens beings that are aware and are aware that they're aware 
this capacity for metacognition. And so the to remember points first to that. It also has a deeper meaning that I tend to really enjoy. And it's it's less about remembering to do something and more about remembering what is inherent to who you are, that you are not your patterns of conditioning. You are not the temporary thought moving through your mind. You're not even the suffering that you're experiencing. There's an ex- There's a fundamental wholeness and completeness and vastness inherent to each person that is in many ways non-mystical. You, anyone who's dove into contemplative practice or spent any time watching their mind sees that, oh, there's, there's my experience, but there's an ability to observe my experience. <clears throat> and the observation, the point of observation is one of the most mysterious things we have as humans, because we don't really know where that's coming from, what it is. Is it related to the brain? Is it outside the brain? But it's a point of identification that is qualitatively different than the thought itself. And so the another version of how we can understand mindfulness is just simply this moment-to-moment recognition um, and remembering of who we are on a deeper level, separate from everything that's just like happening around us. Hmm. And I think that's really where we start to get into a deeper liberation because so much of the suffering that we experience comes from an over-identification with the particular conglomeration of experience that's in front of us in this moment. Yeah, and I feel like uh, even right now, the the labels and the boxes that people tend to throw out there, and I feel like we're actually creating more labels as uh, society evolves. It is uh, It is these things and these boxes that kind of keep us within this level of identification where uh, people are starting to identify with their job. People are starting to identify saying, I'm a family man. People are starting Mm -hmm. to say that I'm this and I'm that. And whenever I think about that, it's just like, no, you're, you're much deeper than that. You, you actually are more vast than who you are in regards to your family and who you are in regards to your work. And, uh, and I do feel like when we start identifying with these things, it's uh, it, it literally creates this like invisible box around us where we only see things through this like lens of perception. So, yeah. you know, when, when we talk about mindfulness and we talk about meditation, uh, you know, through my research, I've actually found that this was not necessarily uh, always the case with you. Um, as with all things, something that I, I found really cool is about you is just the fact that uh, you actually got into mindfulness and meditation uh, because of all things, a, a girl. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the first line of my book. Uh, that I started meditating because of a girl. It was a college girlfriend. Um, she was much cooler than I was and a bit of a hippie and earthy and spiritual. And I was running fraternity parties as social chair. And I wasn't a total douche, but I was kind of just like going through the motions and playing out a particular part that I thought I was supposed to be in college. And mm. anyway, I wanted her to think I was cool. So I started meditating because she was into it. And then she broke up with me two weeks after that. <laughs> so uh, it's not necessarily a plug for meditating and uh, get the girl. Uh, but the you could make an argument in, in a different way for that. But at least in, at that point in time, it was the pain of that breakup that actually caused me to take the practice more seriously because it was the only thing that was giving me any sort of relief. Mm. And for those who are listening and maybe felt like the first portion of my description of mindfulness got a little out there, if we just ground this very practically for anyone, you know, what it looks like to be practicing mindfulness it could be as simple as just closing your eyes and giving yourself something to focus on like your breath, which is what I was doing when I first started practicing. And I would just watch when my mind would wander off and it would go off into a thought. And the thought could be like, you know, at, th- at this point after the breakup, it was like, man, what's wrong with me for mm. like, what did I mess up? Or like, how can I get her back? And there was an ability and what you're practicing is just almost observing those experiences, those thoughts as if you were watching clouds pass through the sky or you were eavesdropping on someone else's conversation in a coffee shop, 
So there's an impersonal nature to it where you're not suppressing it and you're not denying that's part of your experience. You're just seeing that there's a different way to relate to it. So you watch the thought and then come back to the breath. And I was just doing that over and over and over. Um, and within like a couple of weeks, my sleep improved radically. I went from waking up. I had very restless sleep when I was an adolescent up to my early 20s. Uh, I would wake up like 20, 30 times a night, just like light, superficial sleep, started meditating and then would wake up only like two times a night, nights where I wasn't waking up at all. Uh, I was able to do this thing that, that some people call paying attention. That felt like a superpower. Didn't really have access to that before. And there was these new qualities of becoming a better listener, feeling more grounded, and overall developing a sense of an, a center, a stability point that I didn't have before. Yeah. And so, yeah, it all started with the girl. And then a year later, I was in a monastery with a shaved head. <laughs> I was going to say, it's like you went from like zero to a hundred after that. It's almost like a guy who like takes a drug, essentially. Yeah. And uh, he gets really addicted to that drug. And he's just, uh, you know, for a lot of guys who have like, you know, say addictions to things that are like harmful, they take it to the nth degree and just have to make their whole days about it. But, but in your case, you took kind of like this like type A personality type of <laughs> approach to to mindfulness a little bit where you're like, you know, and, and you can you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you basically wanted the the most painful experience possible, the most painful, the most experiential uh, experience that you can have, and you actually chose one of the actually the hardest teacher. Uh, in how do you how do you explain this? Like the hardest teacher in what? Like in, yeah, in, in a particular, he was just notoriously um, demanding. And sort of ruthless in his expectation of your commitment for enlightenment, which can sound almost counterintuitive or antithetical to what we would think of about meditation. But that's usually just a general ignorance around the practice and the traditions around it. Mm. Um, that many of these traditions are very intense and fierce. And this guy in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, the late Sayadaw Upandita, um, yeah, he was intense. And people told me he was intense. And for some reason, that piqued my interest. And I associated more intensity with more results, which was just to clarify, I think a younger, it was a younger, less matured perspective. I mm. don't believe that that is always the case, especially with something like meditation. It can actually cause you to get wound up. And that does happen with a lot of people who have studied under him. Yeah. And, and I was wondering, it's like, if you look back to uh, what you thought the experience of mindfulness was back then when you're doing, when you're in the monastery and evolving to where you are right now, um, what are, what do you feel are like the stark differences between uh, kind of going full on ahead with like being in the Buddhist monastery, shaving your head, uh, having this like, having this schedule that's all based on mindfulness and having this militant teacher to where you are right now, where you're teaching hundreds of thousands of people about mindfulness in a very, like a less secular way that I would actually say, like a, a very much way that people can receive it. So what are your mm. biggest uh, lessons uh, from where you were then to where you are right now? Yeah. First thing is that meditation and mindfulness um, can very easily be used as forms of suppression if you're not careful. Mm. And I even saw that in that tradition that I was practicing in. There was this young man, he's like 28 years old, Japanese, and he had been in the monastery for months. And when I saw him, uh, he was he would sit full lotus position, which is like one foot on one thigh, the other on the other thigh. It's impossible. It, it's so, yeah, it's <laughs> no chance. I can hardly sit cross-legged. <laughs> and he would sit like this for three hours at a time, perfectly still. And I would just look at this guy in awe and daydream about what's going on in his experience. Like, it must be totally blank. He must be enlightened. And I was like, if only I could be that good. And... As time went on, I got to witness him in interviews with our teacher. The, the way the interview process works with our teacher, we get to talk once every few days, otherwise you're silent, in silence, and two people go into the room at the same time to keep uh, pace. So one person's present uh, sharing and then one person's listening. So I would listen to what he would share. And when he would 
right when he would begin, something in him would decompensate. And there was like a moment of vulnerability and there would just be, he would just start crying. Mm. Um, like there was just clearly a very deep pain. And then he would, it was so interesting, but he would take this deep breath and try to suck it all up. And then he would just share in this mechanical robotic way as if that didn't happen. And I don't know why it would happen in those moments. Maybe just the being with my teacher, something in him softened temporarily, but there was some internal policing of his experiences as I shouldn't be experiencing this, suck it all up. And I think he was using his practice to concentrate him away from Mm. the things that actually needed to be touched by presence and awareness and love. And so, a big part of what I've integrated from the intensity of that practice, which really gave me access to very deep concentration, uh, gave me access to what it looks like to just be aware of your experience without being caught in your experience, is all the subtle ways where that can go wrong and the different ways to practice. You know, sometimes it's about, yeah, just developing a one-pointed focus on the breath. But other times, if you're grieving and you're just using focusing on the breath to not feel your grief, well, nothing's actually getting processed. It's just getting accumulated in the background. And so that might require a more open awareness where you're just like, I'm going to let myself feel the waves of this until it moves through. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's anyone who follows me, like you'll notice there's like a softness to how I teach often as the the first access point, because I am meeting people from all different walks of life. And I tend to default more to um, like a softer heart quality to meet people. But as you work with me more closely, depending on where a person is, sometimes it's going to require like a fierceness, which I got to experience in spades when I was in Burma. The whole thing was fierceness. Mm -hmm. I mean, my teacher would even say, treat your body like a corpse. Like a corpse wouldn't be moving if it were burned or if it were getting stabbed, like really intense things like this. And says like, while you're meditating, you should have that same sort of resolve to just, I'm going to be here no matter what sort of pain I experience. And I'm just going to be aware of it. Mm. There's some wisdom in that. It feels like teeth gritten a little bit, that experience. Say that again? It feels like it's like teeth gritten, you know, it's like gritting your teeth a little bit. Yes, it, it can. It's such a fine line. And this is why I take the language that I use very seriously and when I teach, because that informs how a person is going to internalize it and then practice themselves. And uh, it can just go wrong if there's not good access points. Yeah. And, and I feel like, you know, med- meditation, mindfulness, it, it's a tool, but, but also a lot of times, like you said, it, like people can actually use this as an escape. A little bit or try to use it as an escape from or actually use it to solve some of the issues emotional issues that they're going through and something that i admire about you is you're actually melding both of these uh things together in terms of mindfulness and emotional awareness and and it's almost like you're you're creating like your own practice so to speak i don't know if there if you borrowed this practice from someone else but it seems like you're kind of melding these things together um, you know, one of the things that I've, I've seen through my research when you're talking to people is actually like, uh, when you do these retreats for yourself and with uh, the people that you do the retreats with, um, you actually have this circle. And then I remember there was like one story where this girl, uh, would actually suppress the things that she would share by trying to use as much humor as possible. Mm. And then when she started sharing, she would just like open up and just start crying incessantly. So, so how exactly do you meld the mindfulness aspect and this emotional awareness aspect together? Uh, yeah, yeah. How do you do those things at the same time, or maybe, yeah, at different times? Yeah, you know, I I view it all as a very intimate dance with yourself, and then as a teacher with people that I'm working with. When I'm working in more intimate settings with you know, a smaller group of people, let's say 12 to 20 people over the course of five days. I can't just show up and uh, even just say like, hey, we're going to do 12 hours of meditation each day. You can. I mean, that's what a traditional silent mind meditation retreat is going to be. 
but I've found limitations with that. Hmm. And so what I'm interested in is, is monitoring all the different ways a person is blocked and closed and guarded. And that's different for each person. Everyone has their own patterns that developed usually in childhood, but even into adulthood that cause them to feel unsafe, that cause them to be skeptical of something, and that cause them to be resistant to bringing presence and awareness to their experience. And I think earlier me kind of really wanted to like bulldoze into that experience and just create catharsis and make it as intense as possible and what I've learned is that if you make it too intense for a person, too emotionally intense or even too vulnerable early on, the wall actually gets stronger. Mm. And it, there needs to be – so this dance I'm talking about is constantly assessing what's happening in the room for each person and then as the collective in terms of like um, what needs to be done right now. Do we need more talking? Do we need to penetrate a little bit? Uh, stronger, like so, maybe more intensity with eye contact or practice. Do um, like do we need like uh, sometimes I'll bring music in and that like elicits an emotional response that then warms us up for different heart opening practices. So as it relates to the mindfulness and the emotional side of things, they're extremely complementary. Mindfulness, which we let's just make the simple translation of that to be awareness awareness of what's happening. That's in the backdrop in every single moment. You don't have to earn it. It's your birthright. It's here. It just has to be, you just get more and more in touch with it. And so that's different than um, the emotions that you're experiencing and the thoughts that you're experiencing. So when we're talking about doing emotional work, these two are interacting because how do we actually be able to work with emotions that are arising and, and do healing work or even growth work? It requires an awareness of what's happening and a stability in awareness. Right? Since mindfulness is so mainstream now, everyone's like familiar with, for the most part, the idea of being self-aware. And it can just be like, okay, yeah, check that box off. It's not that easy. One, there are infinite layers to how deep you can get in that, that I don't care how many thousands of hours of practice you have, you're just going to touch into more and more intimately all the different ways that you're blocked, that you're guarded, that you're on autopilot. Um, but it's it's not something you can really cognize yourself into. It's just like, oh, okay, just start being aware. There needs to be a practice of some sort Um that is anchoring you in that stability point of awareness repeatedly. And then, then it's that that we're bringing into. So my retreats will be a blend of like anchoring into that and then going into areas of your life and doing experiences or guided visualizations or dyads or triads that start to bring things up for people. And then it's the awareness that we've anchored into that now holds that in a different way. And essentially, this is this is the essence of learning to reparent yourself, mm. which isn't just something that we all like, do I want to do the reparenting thing or not? I think reparenting, or at least labeling it that way, is the heart of what all of us are doing as we mature into adulthood. We all have an inner child. You don't even have to view it as like a child. You just have a younger version of yourself that at a point in time learned who they needed to be in order to be okay and loved and praised. And it creates all of these patterns of conditioning, usually unconsciously. So the reparenting thing is you coming back to that younger version of yourself and, and showing up with stability and presence and basically saying, um, I am going to be here for you through all of it, through your doubt, through your uncertainty, through when you feel like you hate yourself, through when things happen. I am here as your companion. And, and sometimes that part like can be fierce and just like, this is what we need to do right now. But it's like, I'm not going to abandon you. And if we don't have that internally, then we're constantly looking for other people to do this for us. And it becomes the seeds of, of codependence. I need you to be this way for me in order for me to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I, I know, I know something about that, that inner child and I'm not going to say I'm a, I'm a complete expert, but, uh, I went through a little bit of like this, uh, not a little bit, it was a psychedelic therapy session mm -hmm. and, um, got in touch with, uh, this, this little kid, 
that was uh, inside of me. And my whole thing during that session was, you know, telling him, dude, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Just relax and integrating and actually long story short, the, the people that were with me, they, they helped me kind of like hug and integrate this child, you know, back into myself, mm-hmm. which was, which was a trip in and of itself. I had to actually like Google what, what the hell happened after, after kind of going through that experience. And one thing that I realized is that we, we all have this like inner child that is inside of us that has us act in certain ways in order to protect us based on how we were parented and raised uh, before. And, you know, far be it for me to say, it's like, you know, let's just say someone doesn't have access to uh, your retreat. Let's just say someone that doesn't have access to psychedelic therapy. Uh, God forbid, I'm not going to recommend anyone to do drugs. (laughs) So how can they get in touch with this child? Uh, Let's just say on their own. Is there like a three-step formula? Is there Mm. a a system towards it? Yeah. So what I would suggest, anyone who wants to try this, is to pick a time in the day. I think about 10 minutes should be a solid baseline. It can eventually be shorter and you can make it longer. Um, And imagine yourself just in a wide open space. Um, It could be a field, a meadow. If you're not a visual person, you can feel what it would be like to be in the space like that. And then just drop into your experience. Like, it's really important to first get still and grounded so you could take, you know, a few minutes of deep breathing, put your hand on your belly or feel your hands on your lap. All of these things just start to ground us and then bring this visual of being in uh, in a space like this. And then imagine that there's a chair sitting uh, in front of you and feel and there's a lot of different ways to bring this out. So if, if you're going through something where you feel a particular fear or confusion in your life or uncertainty about something mm. or something that is create that feels younger in you, um, and usually it's going to be something fear-based, first feel where that is in your body and then imagine like what is the form that this would take? Does it have, is, would it take the shape of a character? Would it take the shape of a younger you? Would it just be like a conglomeration of uh, color and form? Um, and very important to have whatever visual that you create around this to really feel connected to the actual experience. The, the reason this is key is because you're, with reparenting, the heart of it is, is relational. So mm-hmm. you need to be able to relate to this experience almost as separate from you initially. There can be a fuller integration over time, but in order to do this work of like talking to yourself and this part of you, creating that separation is important. And then you just imagine it sitting in the chair um, and you sitting here and imagining it sitting in front of you. And then it's just about the first step is just relationship building. It's just like, hey, like, really nice to meet you. Mm. Um, And you ask it, what's your name? Like, it might have a different name. It might have a different expression. If you really are taking, like, inner child, then it will be, like, a younger version of you. But I don't think it needs to. The mind doesn't always conceptualize a younger version of ourselves in that way. So whatever form it is, ask its name. And then say, I'm just here to get to know you. Like, I'm not here to change you right now. I'm not here to fix you. I trust that you've been here uh, and have had a positive intention in my life. And I'm sorry if I've sometimes tried to bulldoze you or ignore you or I didn't trust that in you. Um, Right now, I just want to get to know you. And that is, that has to be the foundation, that curiosity and openness has to be the foundation for integrating parts. If anyone's familiar with internal family systems, IFS, parts work, um, essentially the the recognition within that is we each have a family of parts inside of us, similar to your own family that serve different functions. And the way you get those operating together is like making bringing them to the same team. And each person needs to needs you to see their value in some way. And so if you're constantly just pushing this part aside, trying to get to get to some goal, 
you can maybe reach that goal, but something is getting further fractured in you, which is why you like get to this place, but you still feel empty or still feel disconnected. So the first step of this is just getting to know that child or that form. And so I would take 10 minutes, ground yourself for three of those minutes, spend three minutes or two minutes bringing the form into a chair and then spend five minutes um, just talking to it. And at the end, it's just like, um, how can I, how can I help you? Or how can I, what would you need to feel like I'm showing up for you or that you're safe and you're protected? It all comes down to safety. I don't care how macho, jacked, uh, hardcore CEO you are, like, we all have this human need for safety. And that child form is, is like the fundamental one we need to communicate with. Yeah. And I feel like, uh, you know, when we say hardcore and jacked and the successful CEO, um, you know, some, a lot of times it's like an overcompensation for that lack of safety as well. So, so if you, I mean, like if you're listening to this, you know, a lot of times us as guys and even as, as women, um, we can actually find ourselves overcompensating in some areas of our life in order to compensate for, say, a fear or a lack of safety or uh, something that uh, we don't feel up for, something that we don't feel we're living up to. So so doing something like this, it, 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 like for me, I feel like the main benefit is awareness. Are there any other benefits to kind of getting in touch with this, uh, let's just say, quote unquote, inner child or, or whatever you want to call it? I mean, even just traditional success. I mean, think about... Um, why you wouldn't take a risk for something they you might have your whole storyline about why you shouldn't do it and you talk yourself out of it and it's like yeah it feels a little scary it's just like all right i'm not going to do that and then maybe you overcompensate it's like ah, it's stupid anyway i don't need that anyway i'm going to do my own thing mm-hmm. so there are all these ways that there's some part of you that is in fear and it's too vulnerable to touch it so we have all these storylines that tell us why we shouldn't do it anyway so Mindfulness allows us to first be honest with ourselves what's coming up. Oh, there's something that I want to do in my life and I am terrified to take the risk of it. Cool. Great. Mm. I'm sure that was hard to say, but now we can actually do something with it. So let's talk to that fear. We can override the fear. We can push it. We can say, you know, fuck you. We're going through anyway. Stop being a little bitch. I've tried that approach. And I'm not going to say that that can't work, but what I've often seen is you can abandon a part of you in service of some goal rather than bringing the wholeness of you to that end. And so a different approach is to feel that fear and see where it's coming from, that child, and say, like, what's coming up? What what are you scared of? Mm. Um, Just like, well, what if we fail and, like, they don't like us or whatever the storyline is. And then you can talk to that and say, yeah, I know. Like we did, that did happen when we were younger, when we were 13 and we tried something and then dad yelled at us because we weren't successful and we don't want to feel that again. We're different now. And we know that if we do get to that point, we have totally new inner resources to navigate the thoughts, the emotions, the pains. And I'm going to be with you every step of the way. That's you talking to yourself. That is a totally different way of navigating fear. And in my experience, it it's blown me away how powerful that is for actually moving closer to the energy of creation that wants to move through me that you could say is the foundation for traditional forms of success. Yeah, I've, I've been feeling this uh, a lot myself. Um, so, so as you know, like uh, we've had conversations about, you know, growing our social media accounts, uh, you know, like growing our audience and and even right now, like I'm taking on this, um, the responsibility of uh, being just a really good podcast or not being a really good podcaster, but taking this onto my plate and also um, getting into things like YouTube. And one of the things that comes up with me is just like, God, God damn it, this is also fucking overwhelming. Mm. Like, how, how like, can we do this? Like, what is going on? And then when you are explaining it the way that you're explaining it, I think like there was some part of me. Uh, before that would be like you know what fuck this shit okay like we're gonna do this okay all right just shut the fuck up and you know let's let's go let's get after it you know like jocko willink would say Uh, but but in this case it seems like the energy is much more sustainable because you're not pushing things away you're not you're not actually suppressing things you're seeing the 
conflict up front and you are managing it and giving a different perception and giving like a different kind of belief around what that feels like to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I appreciate you just explaining that uh, immensely. So uh, one of the things that comes to mind right now is based on the kind of like a conversation we were having a little bit before, which is, you know, even then um, let's just say like in your own business right now, um, we don't have to make it public or whatever, but you've been going through kind of like uh, putting out a specific fire inside of your business. That was, that was pretty significant. Hmm. So you, I don't want to make you out to be like the most perfect mindful guy or, or whatever it is, but you know, definitely I would love to know from you. It's like, how did you uh, deal with that situation uh, being the guy that you are and, uh, and bringing mindfulness to kind of like everything that you had to do in regards to make the situation as right as possible for yourself. Yeah. Great. Yeah. For context, for those who are like, oh, what was the fire? Uh, I, I use SMS uh, texting as a big part of my business, um, to stay in touch with people and let them know about events as well. And the cost of that uh, almost 10 to 20 X, um, overnight. And it was just absurd. (laughs) (laughs) So I really had to figure that out and figure it out quickly. Um, And it's interesting because maybe like earlier version mindfulness, Corey might have had a storyline of what it would mean to go through that mindfully. Mm. It's like, all right, let's take a deep breath and just check in. Like, let's do five minutes of meditation and then go, what's the next step here? I think because it's really integrated into me right now, and I view mindfulness as you having really free and open access to the full range of emotions. Um, like what came up was like, all right, we got to figure this out and we got to do it fast. And it was just like, put my head down, burrow in in all these different ways. And I really gave myself permission to even be in the energy of like, this needs to get figured out. The difference was that I'm tracking as I'm going through that, like, is this creating extra suffering that I don't want to be experiencing? Mm. And at no point was that true. It was like, this is a problem, needs to be solved. It's also met with this larger meta awareness that's come from my practice that like, I'm still just like sort of playing a game of life and this is not going to ruin me um, on any like really deep, significant level. And even if it does like there's still a foundation a center that i've touched into through my practice that carries me through so it it keeps a lightness there um but it also brings to mind the uh, a story that this meditation teacher joseph goldstein shared when he was practicing in india with his teacher manindraji and you know they would practice in the monastery and then they would come down to the village and buy food And he, you know, his teacher always said to him, like, keep it simple, keep it simple, keep it simple. Mm. Everything was just keep it simple. And so he remembers watching his teacher haggling with someone over, like trying to save like a little bit of money over a bag of rice. It was like, I want this. Like, no, you're going to get, no, I need this. And so he was like, oh my gosh, I I guess I saw my teacher out of his element and almost felt shame for seeing it. But he talked to him, he approached him because it was really bothering him. And he said, um, listen, I, I watched you do this. And, you know, you're always saying, keep it simple, keep it simple, be simple. And and he said, yes, I said, I said, be simple. I didn't say be a simpleton. <laughs> <laughs> and in in his mind, what that meant was in this particular context, that was the appropriate response to the moment, mm-hmm. which was one of his definitions of mindfulness, an appropriate response to the present moment. And it, in that context, that's what you do. You haggle. Mm-hmm. And it's like that person's playing the part and you're playing their part. But there's a difference between being associated in the torment of it, just like I need this as like a life or death thing versus this awareness of who you are beyond what you're doing and then giving yourself permission to just be in the energy of what's being asked for in this moment. And so with the whole texting saga, which is like still ongoing, but almost resolved now, it was just like, oh, I'm pissed that this is happening, like feel that being pissed. Is this warranted? Yeah, it kind of is warranted. There's a lot that got crossed here that shouldn't have happened. And that's causing me to want to have an honest conversation with myself. I could have suppressed that. I could have said, oh, a mindfulness person doesn't get pissed mm-hmm. and like have written really nice emails to people back and forth. 
I don't think that would have served me in the way that it ha- it ended up serving me. Um, and so, yeah, it's just like a freedom to experience what's here with an awareness of how you feel about that and how the world around you is responding to it. And then just using that as data, as like a biofeedback. Yeah. It's like everyone has this concept that mindfulness is like, all right, just like acquiesce and <laughs> just let things happen when, when the real world doesn't like, especially if you're operating in the real world, especially in an entrepreneurial sense, it doesn't necessarily, that's, that's not the reality that you live in. And, and for you, if you're like, let this happen to me, like when regards to the texting, it, it, you know, you would actually be paying what you were paying before instead of looking for a solution. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, I love the fact that you, you allow yourself to feel these emotions. Cause I feel like a lot of times with, you know, especially just like meditation and mindfulness, it's like, no, don't feel that. Don't feel that. Don't do that. Oh, don't, yeah. don't, don't think that. But, but you actually go fully into like, yeah, dude, I'm pissed. This is not cool. This is actually like, <laughs> this actually sucks. And, and they shouldn't have done this in the first place. Uh, and yeah, I, I like that. It actually just reminds me, it's like mindfulness doesn't mean that you're a freaking pushover. Mm-mm. You know, it, it means that you actually like mindfulness is being there, but also doing what you need to do to make things right on your end. Yeah. At least that's what I'm getting from you. Yeah. So, so, you know, you're, you're growing this business right now. And a lot of times with business, it's very much rooted in the future, right? Mm-hmm. And this, it's almost like this battle between thinking about the future and being rooted in the present and doing exactly the next action that's in front of you. So, so what are your practices to kind of uh, amalgamating both of those things, the future and the present, especially from like an entrepreneurial business context? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Those two just continue to feel less and less in conflict for me. They used to feel way more in conflict. And now it's almost to the point of like, oh, how do I respond to that question anymore? Because my relationship to the future, the present and the past just feel all very integrated into one. Mm. The The foundation for that is first like the recognition that the future and the past, as trite as this may be, like they're not actually happening in the future and the past. They're happening in the present moment. Your life You've never lived in the past. You've never lived in the future. Your life has just always been a series of unfolding present moments. And similar to the whole anger thing of just like, shouldn't feel angry, shouldn't feel angry. I think people have that relationship to past and future. Shouldn't think about the past, shouldn't think about the future. Hmm. But these are things that are arising in the present moment. It's it's more about, I, I think more where we want to watch that is like, what is the identification with the past thought and the future thought. Um, like, am I just swirling in the suffering of what's happened before me? Am I using it to reinforce uh, like a, a victim mentality of like the world is happening to me? This is all happening to me. There's no way out of it. Um, like, that's where this can get really tricky. And the past, you can over identify with like, oh, that's going to happen. And yeah, you're fully living there. But I'm, constantly thinking about the the future Mm. and i'm constantly reflecting on the past and it's all happening in the present moment and even in a a practice of meditation um right there's like you can be directly here by just feeling like the sensations of what's here noticing the sounds of what's arising um but also the thoughts of what's arising and some of those thoughts are related to the future but there's a way to relate to them in the present moment, even if they're about the future. So when the way I integrated into my business um, and just like the entrepreneurial personality type, which I know you resonate with, and I'm sure a lot of uh, listeners do as well, which is very growth oriented, creative, goal oriented, like we thrive and get excited as heck for what we're building, Mm. that it can create this like, put your head down and just go, go, go. And there's like a flow that can come with that and it can be really enjoyable unto itself. And so I don't want to dismiss that even as a path toward happiness. I, my encouragement for me always is just to make sure that I'm like simultaneously aware of like the passing of time and attuned to like, this isn't, this journey isn't going to happen forever. And when I bring that awareness into my consciousness Am I living in a way that's aligned with how I would live from that perspective? And you, often it is. Do yeah. you have check-ins with yourself 
to kind of bring you back to those questions? Yeah, my, again, all of that has become quite integrated as well. But my practice, whatever that looks like, um, for me, like sometimes standing meditation, walking meditation, sitting meditation, these are all I might not consciously be checking in in those moments of like, are you living the life that you want to be living, Mm. but they are tuning me to the energy that I want to be embodying, or that is most alive in me is a better way to put it. I am particularly interested these days in like getting out of my own way, listening for what is most true that wants to come through, Mm. and just surrendering to that on the deepest level, wherever it takes me. Mm. Um, And so my, and I, my fundamental belief is that if I do that my entire life, that is, that is a life well lived. And so everything's kind of oriented around that moment to moment, but someone could do this as a daily practice. And just, and, and yeah. you were talking about walking meditation, standing mm-hmm. meditation. Um, is there such a thing as like lying, I guess lying down meditation. Is there yeah. such a thing as like eating meditation? Yeah, sure. Okay. So right. let's let's just distinguish mindfulness <laughs> yeah. from meditation for a moment. And yeah. um, since we got Dan, the gym man, athlete, <laughs> muscle, beautiful human, uh, the we'll put it like a gym analogy on it. We can view meditation as like going to the gym, and we can view mindfulness as a form of like mental fitness. Mm-hmm. And so meditation is like a dedicated period of time that we're taking to intentionally cultivate and anchor ourselves into awareness where we're choosing in a sense to renounce our identification with our thoughts instead of just going through the motions as we typically would. It's like, I'm going to take this five minutes and just feel into who I am separate from all these things that are constantly pulling me into the next thing. Um, And so that can happen over a meal. Uh, it can happen while you're sitting still. It can happen while you're lying down, standing up, or even walking. Um, I do think things that are particularly familiar to us, things that we might go through on automatic pilot, like eating or trying to do this while you're watching TV um, or even like listening to music, the you can get yourself caught there a bit because it can just trigger a familiar like going through the motion. And that's where a practice of stillness um, or like a dedicated period and place that you take to do your practice is, is helpful. But the fullest expression of it is that there's really no distinction between mindfulness and meditation. Like every moment can become a meditation. So, so let's just say, uh, you know, I'm an, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm, you know, I want to get started on, let's just say meditation. Uh, what is the easiest, (laughs) I hate that word, actually, I'm sorry I'm using that (laughs) word, because easy is the worst word to use, you know, usually it actually leads to the hardest path, but what do you feel is like the path of least resistance Mm. when it comes to integrating meditation into the life of an entrepreneur in order to boost their performance and have them become more mindful? Yeah, well... We have a couple different answers. One tendency I notice with entrepreneurs and this work is like a big all or nothing personality type. And so you can get excited after listening to a podcast episode like this or reading something about mindfulness and go, cool, done, integrating into my life 40 minutes a day, twice a day, every single day for the rest of my life. And it's like, goes great for two weeks. And then, you know, next thing you know, you're like on the couch with a bag of potato chips watching Modern (laughs) Family. And so like there can be this swinging and I'm, I'm much more interested in like, what is the integration that doesn't feel so much like this is just another chore that you need to add to your life? Mm. Not because it can't be practiced that way, but I think similar to you in all the ways I've observed you teaching it's like the integration and the sustainability is the most important thing. And so if that's going to be five minutes, you know, more frequently over the course of the next few years versus like two hours sporadically and you give it up and you like start despising it because it just feels like such a big thing in your life, I'm always going to go for those five minutes. Mm. Um, so what I, the first thing I'd recommend for someone is to really feel into um what about this inspires you? Like, what about the practice are you excited about? 
and what feels like an access point for you. And I'll give a few of what those can look like. I mean, is you can do a walking meditation where you wake up in the morning and you just go outside and you feel each foot on the ground. It's just right foot, left foot. And you make that your object of focus, or you just be aware of what's happening around you. Um, or you might, you might feel like, you know what, I just want to, I want like three minutes where I'm just perfectly still before the day begins. And I call that statue meditation where you don't really do anything other than just commit to being still and let yourself relax into that. And so that might really inspire you. Or it might just be like the inner child thing. It's like, man, if I spent five minutes a day with my inner child, I feel like that would be massively useful. So the big thing is just see like, what are you excited about? And then create a form around practice that um, aligns with that because that's going to be sustainable. If you want to just keep it more simple, and I, I know for some of us, just like give me the prescription, then what <laughs> I would say is uh, 10 minutes a day, sit down in a chair or on the ground um, and follow this five-part sequence. I call it the grain method. Um, G stands for ground. So take the first minute to just ground yourself, feel your body rooted to the earth beneath you, your connection point. All of this is showing your nervous system. Hey, we're here. We're not over there. We're here right now. Once you start grounding, then R stands for relax. And that's just inviting any part of the body that's willing to relax, to relax around the frame, the jaw, the shoulders, the belly. All of this is starting to communicate a sense of safety, gives us more access to metacognition. G-R-A stands for accept. That is the expression, the one sentence expression of acceptance in this uh, example is this moment, it's like this. And it doesn't mean like accept, like, oh, I endorse this moment and I want it to be like this forever. It's just a recognition of, oh, like right now I'm angry. Right now, I'm joyful. Right now, I'm sad. And so, you just say to yourself, this moment, it's like this. And then the bulk of it is going to be the I, which is invite your attention somewhere. Um, and so, that could be on the breath. It could be, and the breath could be at the nostrils or at the belly. It could be feeling your body on the ground. Uh, if you have a mantra and you want to do that, you can do that, although that's a bit separate from mindfulness. Um, so, let's just keep it simple. Invite your attention on the breath. And then N is kind of optional, but it's it's nurture. And this is just, and sometimes you could say nurture the positive, but it's just more nurturing your experience, making sure that we're not getting caught in this sterile orientation of inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, mm -hmm. and more allow there to be some warmth to it, because that's the thing that's actually going to really relax the system um, and mend the relationship with you. So G-R-A-I-N, you can use that as like a 10-minute sequence. And I would uh, highly recommend uh, for the people listening to this to download Corey's podcast. I believe it's Practicing a Human. Yeah. 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 And you have just some amazing cues. And I, man, I've been doing a lot of research around you. I've been basically ensconcing myself in, in Corey Mascara. And, <laughs> um, and I've been listening to your podcast. And I'm just like, damn, I'm going to be listening to this for pretty much like, you know, the rest of my time. This is awesome. Like this Thanks, is funny. Okay. So I have some rapid fire questions for you to end off uh, this interview. By the way, it's been freaking fantastic. Uh, I've been taking notes and uh, I'm going to be going back into this podcast and, and taking even more notes and trying some of the exercises that you've been um, prescribing a little bit. But rapid fire questions, uh, you could do a couple sentences towards each. Uh, no pressure on any of them. And I'm going to start with, uh, with a low ball one. Cool. Uh, right off the bat, uh, who is your favorite golfer? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> I used to really like Dustin Johnson before he we went to the live tour. No offense. <laughs> anyone who supports the live tour. Um, what I, are you, oh, okay. What are your <laughs> thoughts around the live tour? <laughs> you know, I, I romanticize the PGA tour. I grew up like, you know, aspiring to be on the PGA tour and I, I think it's good it's fracturing things. I've trying to listen to both sides and really understand those players who are moving over. I mean, the heart of it, like, yeah, there's some lifestyle things that become available, but there's just really big money packages being offered and everyone seems to have their soundbite responses mm -hmm. for it. So my provocative stance is I think 
The PGA Tour should say, anyone who's left, it's like, cool, enjoy your package, enjoy the Live Tour. No access to majors, no access to the PGA Tour. Oh, wow. And I think there needs to be some preservation. Um, but again, this is just like, this is where I stand now. Let's do a podcast in a year. I might change it. <laughs> I just have this romantic, like, I, I want to follow the storyline of the PGA Tour and the wins and all of that's like starting to get compromised. Yeah. If you want to at me on Instagram and just like, you know, give me your pr other perspective, I'm open to it. <laughs> uh, okay. So what is it about golf that you're so drawn to? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, it started when I was 12. Um, I love things that I can do solo and just repeat and be creative with and really refine. And golf was perfect for that for me growing wow. up. The added benefit was I love being out on the course and the spaciousness of it, the beauty of it. Um, always have and still do to this day. So it's just a great combination for like being outside and beauty and like doing something that I love to kind of get my it, hands on. It works really well with your MO as well. Yeah. You know? Okay. So uh, what is the most important thing that you believe? That if there is indeed a life that we are meant to live, it will only be uncovered by our ruthless commitment to listening for and surrendering to what is most true in us in each moment. I love the word ruthless too. Yeah. This entrepreneur in me, I just love the word ruthless. <laughs> uh, biggest misconceptions about meditation. That it's about clearing your mind. Mm. And that and that you can clear your mind, that your mind is just going to be blank. This causes people the most amount of suffering and the reason they try it and then let it go and think that they're failing at it. Mm. Just I went six months meditating close to 18 hours a day, every single day, no days off. And the longest I went without a thought was about 48 seconds. So <laughs> cut yourself some slack. I feel like sometimes meditation can lead people to uh, feeling worse about themselves. Gosh. Like, shit. <laughs> like, I know. Stupid, stupid. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great yourself. <laughs> uh, who are your mentors? It's a good question. Um, I actually don't reveal many of my active mentors because it's important for me as a teacher to have spaces that I can go to separate from mm -hmm. my students. And there's been, I've done this a couple times in the past where I share, and then I'm like in a student relationship with a teacher with other students of mine. And it's, it can be done, but um, I think it's important for teachers to have spaces where they can go separate from their students. Okay. Um, who were your, your, the, yeah, so I'll most, say yeah, past mentors maybe. People yeah. like for a while John Kabat-Zinn was a big mindfulness mentor for me. This woman Perry Chase um who does a lot of work around like masculine feminine. Uh I've really enjoyed her work uh in recent years. You find her on Instagram. Um I mean endless different Buddhist teachers. Ken Wilbur, I really, uh, I really respect and like his approach. Um, I think I'll leave it there. Th this leads me to another question. What are your thoughts on Alan Watson? Alan Watts? Alan Watts, yes. Yeah, Watts. Or, or Alan Wallace. <laughs> yeah, the, Alan Watts. Yeah, you know, I only know him through various sound bites and talks I've heard over the years. And it's all seemed to add up. Um, it, it's, it seemed to feel aligned. I mean, I remember listening, listening to some of his stuff when I was first getting into this in college and feeling really inspired. And he spoke to the mystery of it all that really brought me in like things like non-self. I was just like, I don't get that at all. And yet something is pulled to understanding what that actually is pointing to, mm -hmm. or that we're all connected. It's like, that just sounds like a nice idea, but I haven't experienced the truth of that. So he was actually instrumental for me, like going deeper. Um, but I haven't gone into his work enough in recent years to say how I feel about it. And what I noticed with a lot of different teachers, like even Ramdas, who I adore, mm. a lot of their teachings can be um, almost like spiritual masturbation. <laughs> it, it's like 
and you just like pontificate about something really deep and everyone goes, ooh, ah, that's beautiful. But there's like no rope or ladder to grab onto for how to actually mm. access it. Mm. And I have an aversion to that. And uh, I think Eckhart Tolle can do that quite a bit as well. Mm. Even people like Michael Singer. These are all people like, I actually think they're very awake beings. Um, and so I don't know if Alan Watts falls into that category for me yet. Yeah, I was having a conversation with a friend and you're talking about, uh, you know, there's like so many different types of porn. It's not just like sexual porn. There's like motivation porn. In your <laughs> yeah. case, there's spiritual porn. And I was like, a lot of this stuff is like candy. You know, you yeah. see it up, but you don't really get anywhere. Um, yes. Okay. Yeah. What are your thoughts on karma? Um, our popular conceptualization of it is, uh, is deeply limited in the mm. same way that like law of attraction conceptualization of it i believe is limited um but i did have a very powerful experience while i was in a monastery it was just like a spontaneous awareness of the truth of karma that i can't tell you i can't describe it um all i'll say is i burped and i understood the universe for about <laughs> three seconds and it was just this very deep non-cognitive pre-verbal understanding of the cause and effect relationship of everything across lifetimes and dimensions and um and like i don't really hang my hat on that and i don't use it as a teaching point because there's no utility of it unless you want to believe me but i don't believe that's a good way to like live your life just believe my one-time experience mm -hmm. um i think you can understand karma in very basic ways uh and in your own lived experience um i anytime that i notice like i need to make a decision and there's a part of me a deeper part of me that's like wants to pull in one direction and then another part of me that like kind of talks myself out of it and then i do that and then afterwards i feel like oh that feels off and then something happens moving forward and it's just, like it's further taking me out of alignment hmm. i would view that as karmic consequences it's way more complicated than like you did this and bad thing going to happen to you. Um, but there's like, there's a, a more subtle energetic truth in that than the cause and effect relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the fact that you, you didn't even want to explain the experience that you had gone through because I think sometimes as humans, we try to explain, we try to explain things through words when words are so like primitive to yeah. explain the experiences that we're going through. Okay. Uh, second last question. When, uh, when it's all said and done, uh, what would you like people to say about Corey Mascara? Mascara? That he was really living at the threshold of his life. And what I mean by that is he was, he was in intimate conversation in each moment around what was most true, regardless of how difficult it was to, to face that and was committed to that above all else and he shared about it love you so much brother that was amazing I too Dan. i love you um okay last thing where can people uh find you yeah um so the the podcast is a great starting point practicing human you know these are short episodes five to 15 minutes and there's over 500 of them now uh instagram at Corey mascara i do have a lot of teachings there my text community will be it's We'll be up and running by the time this launches again. So that's a daily text on like mindfulness, mindset, mental health. So people can join that by texting. Just text the word Dan to 631-305-2874. Um, and it's free. And TikTok, if you want to see me not dance. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to see you doing the pointing thing. Point. Yeah, <laughs> this is what mindfulness is. Point, point, point. <laughs> All right, Corey, it's uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Um, glad we were able to have this conversation as well. Uh, I enjoy all the conversations that we have uh, in person as well. Uh, you know, every single time that we just connect with each other, reconnect, and uh, these conversations that we have are always vivid in my memory because you know they mean something to me. They're really, uh, you know, they're really dope. Yeah. So yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I really Thank appreciate you, it. Yeah. And everyone listening, you know, if you haven't gotten a chance to meet Dan in person, sometimes you don't know like who the human is behind the social media person. Dan is as authentic 
uh, as he comes across. And it's just a, a treasure to have you as a friend, Dan. And thank you for bringing me on. I appreciate it. Thank you again for listening to The Dan Go Show. We have some amazing episodes coming your way, so make sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. If you're already subscribed and today's episode hit home for you, please share this episode with some that you know who'd benefit from listening. Take care and see you every week on your favorite podcasting app.